time that you were overwhelmed with anxiety. Think of a time that you were overwhelmed with a decision that had to be made, overwhelmed with a stressful situation you were going through, overwhelmed with future results. Maybe it was the news of a family member entering the hospital. Maybe it was a fight that you had with a friend. Maybe it was the waiting for results on a grade that would show you if you have to retake a class. Maybe it was no, not knowing if you, what you did at work last week would result in your firing. For whatever reason, you may have been or uh, were overwhelmed. Think about how did this overwhelming experience affect you? Maybe you couldn't think straight. Maybe you couldn't fulfill your normal responsibilities. Maybe you couldn't even get out of bed. Maybe you couldn't hold a conversation. This situation took over your thoughts. It distracted you. It agitated you. It frustrated you to the point that it consumed your normal activities. Eventually, the situation passes. And for whatever reason, you reflect and you look over the hours, the days, even the months that it consumed your life. You realize how much time was lost agonizing over this overwhelming situation that is now over. You think about the things you could have gotten done. You think about the things, you think of how things could have been different if you didn't have to deal with this situation. You think about the time or the opportunities that were lost to talk with people, to help people, even to witness to people. And this one catches you. You think about the opportunities that you lost to witness to others through this, to be a shining light for God. This can bring discouragement, a sense of failure, a sense of guilt, and even shame. What are we to do in these type of situations? Are we to just get through it and accept the loss? Well, today's passage that we're going to be looking at, 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 12 through 17, the Apostle Paul recounts a situation that he went through, a very similar situation that we may have gone through, an overwhelming situation that caused him anxiety. And he gives us the result of it. But not only the result, he actually tells us how we need to think about it. So if you are not there already or you need to turn back to it, we will be in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 12 through 17, and that will be our text uh, for this morning. So we look at this text, and first we see the situation that Paul gives us, and I'll reread verses 12 through 17. It says, When I came to Troas to preach, preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was opened for me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest, because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I took leave of them and went on to Macedonia. So to give you just a little bit of background about this book, this is the second letter that Paul wrote to the Corinthians. So we see that uh, by it being called 2 Corinthians, but Paul is the writer of this, uh, the writer of this book, and he wrote a first letter to the Corinthians, and he sent this letter by a man named Titus. Titus was a fellow worker, and even we see in verse 13, as he calls him brother, it's not a, um, a family relationship, but it more shows how deep of a friendship they had, how much Paul cared for Titus. So he sends his first letter by way of Titus, and now 
Paul is writing to the Corinthians a second letter, and this is where he's recounting this situation. So in our passage today, as I've kind of already said, Paul describes the situation that he encountered and gives us the results of it. Here is the situation. All right, so if we think over verses 12 through 13, Paul, sometime after sending Titus, decides to go to Troas, as we see in verse uh, verse 12, where it says, when I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ. So we see he plans to go to Troas, but he, d- he doesn't just go there um, for any ordinary purpose, but he goes there for a distinct purpose to preach the gospel, to preach the gospel of Christ. So he goes there with this purpose, and he travels there for this task. And it says at the end of verse 12, it says, even though a door was open for me in the Lord. So we see there's a great opportunity to be a witness there. We see Paul has a great opportunity, and even possibly uh, the Lord had sent him there and um, had said he would bless this opportunity. So we see a door was open. Paul was, had been given a great opportunity to preach the gospel in Troas. But we see, as we see in verse 13, that Paul was anxious for some reason. He was disturbed and stressed over a certain situation, and we see in verse 13 that this was over his brother Titus not being there. He had sent, as I had said, he had sent him with the first letter of the Corinthians, and for some reason he expected Titus to be there in Troas. So as we read this text, as we read these first two verses, I would say two questions pop into our mind. The first is, Why would he assume that Titus would be there? Why would Paul assume that Titus would definitely be in Troas? And then the second question that I think would come to our minds is, why was he so distraught? Why was he so upset that Titus was not there? What was the reason? So the first question, why would Paul assume that Titus would be there? I would uh, tell you that we can't be sure. It does not say why exactly um, he expected Titus to be there, but we could certainly say, Uh, Maybe he expected him to be there because they planned on that. Maybe in prior planning they had uh, discussed that they would both meet up there at a certain time. Or maybe it was just that Paul was trying to just assume and maybe thought in Titus' journey that he would end up in Troas. So we can't be sure of that question. But the second question as to why Paul was so anxious that Titus wasn't there, I think we can answer. If you flip over just a few chapters with me, uh, and just keep your finger at chapter 2, but flip over to chapter 7 with me, 2 Corinthians chapter 7, we're given the reason as to why uh, Paul was so anxious about Titus not being uh, in Troas. So 2 Corinthians chapter 7, and we'll look at just three verses, 5 through 7. It says, For even when we came to Macedonia, our bodies had no rest. So it's talking about the same rest as in our passage. And it says, But we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus. And not only by his coming, but also by the comforts with which he was comforted by you. As he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me. So that I rejoice still more. So we see here in these, in these three verses the reason why Paul was so anxious that Titus didn't show up. And the reason that seems most likely is that Paul was so so anxious is due to the fact that he wanted to know how the Corinthians received his letter. And as we would see if we kept on reading there, how they received it. And they received it with repentance. 
The first letter, Paul kind of called out the Corinthians for many of the sins they were partaking in. And we see in chapter 7 how they repented and how Titus brought that news to him. So Paul was anxious as to um, how the Corinthians would receive his letter. Would they repent? Would they repent of the sins and get right with God? So 2 Corinthians uh, 7, 5 through 7 gives us this understanding of Paul's anxiety. And we see in 2 Corinthians 7, 5 through 7 that when Paul did arrive in Macedonia, he still had no rest. So we see that it was the same rest. We see it, he's talking about the same situation here. And as I said, the answer to our question is that he was anxious because of the, Corinthi or the Corinthians' response to his letter. So as we've seen this anxiety caused Paul to leave Troas, which was an opportunity to share the gospel. He had a great opportunity to share the gospel at Troas, and because of not necessarily a personal matter, but more of a ministry matter, he was distraught about how the Corinthians would receive his letter, what Titus would bring. So what are we to think of such a situation taken by, or an action taken by Paul? He was uneasy concerning something in ministry, work he had to put had put in service for Christ. He was upset, and this upsetness, in a sense we could say, made him miss an opportunity to share the gospel. This agitation to know the condition of the flock in Corinth ate at him. It consumed his mind so much so that it hindered his preaching of the gospel. So what are we to make of this situation? Even what was the result of it? All right, We see that Paul, certainly he was comforted, but was there any other results? And uh, as I said, as we saw in uh, verse chapter 7, we see the result that Paul was comforted. But in our passage today in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, we see a more immediate result. And the spotlight is on God and how he worked. So in light of uh, the situation, Paul now presents to us in the remaining verses in our passage how God could use him as his fragrance in any situation to make his name known known. So our theme, the theme that we can draw from this passage is God can use us as his fragrance in any situation to make his name known. And I submit to you that this passage answers three questions concerning God's use of Paul. So the first question, what does this look like? And this comes from verse 14. If you flip back to chapter 2 with me, I'll read verse 14 again. So the question that's being answered is, what does this look like for God to use, Paul? Verse 14 says, But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession, and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. So if you've caught it, in verse 14 we have a word picture that Paul presents to us. All right, He presents us a very rich picture that the Corinthians probably would have been very familiar with with, being a Roman city, being a Roman town, but we may not be as familiar with it. So imagine this. So the word picture that Paul's kind of uh, picturing is this triumphal procession, all right, a Roman triumphal procession. So picture this with me. Picture a Roman city, all right, say Corinth, for example. The streets are packed, packed full so much so that you cannot even move. And Everyone, it's packed full, but everyone is joyful. Everyone is happy. Everyone is excited. The news has spread around the city that there has been a defeat of the enemy. 
There's been victory for the city. No longer will they have to send men out into the battlefield and fight their enemy, and no longer will they have to be frightened or scared of an incoming attack. So everyone in the city is packed, the streets are packed, and everyone is excited because of this victory. Due to this defeat, the city has thrown a celebration for the army, but even more so the leading general of this battle. This celebration takes place in the form of a parade. And think of a parade that you've been to, maybe a homecoming parade, maybe a a holiday parade, and multiply that by 10, and you have a Roman triumphal procession. So this is what this triumphal procession looked like. Or first, to give you one more note about a triumphal procession, this was the highest military distinction that a uh, general could be given, this triumphal procession. So this is what it kind of looked like. Picture this. Everyone would be watching and cheering. Priests would be burning incense so that the smell floated all the way or all around the city. Everyone is prepared for this procession, and then it begins. You first have marching into the city. You have the Senate and the magistrates, somewhat of the the second rulers of this city. And then after them, you have the spoil of the war, the treasures that have been captured from the enemy. So maybe some riches, maybe some clothing, the goods that the enemies had had would come in next. And then after them would be the captives, those that were the enemies and now were captured by this victorious army would come in next, marching and, re- and would probably be marching miserably in, realizing they are walking to their death. And after them, then, the victor, the leading general would come in on his chariot, horse-drawn, going into the city after these captives. And lastly would come the army, the victorious army, the men that this general had led into the battlefield. So this parade draws all the attention on the general. He is the center of it the Senate and the magistrates, the men who he worked with uh, to guide the city would march in first, and then more honor would be brought to the general in the spoil that he had captured, that he had led to capture. Next would come in the captives that the victor, the leading general, had defeated, and then would come in his army, the men he had led, had guided, um, had directed to defeat this army. So all In this triumphal procession, all of the attention, all the glory was on this one general, the man who had led to the defeat. So that's just a picture of a triumphal procession, what Paul is um, explaining or picturing for us. So that just gives us a picture to kind of work with now. And let's see what Paul is picturing in verse 14. So I'll read this again just to remind us in verse 14. It says, But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession. All right, so in here we see that it says God, or in Christ, God leads us in triumphal procession. So what does this mean? What does it mean that he leads us in triumphal procession? And I would say that in our minds, maybe two ways come first. All right, the first way, maybe... This was actually my more natural way when I first read this passage in looking at, at it is in God leading us in triumphal procession, we are the victors with this leading general. We are maybe part of his army or part of uh, maybe we are a co-leader with Christ and we're marching in with Christ. Maybe that's the first way we could look at it. And I'll tell you that I would say that's the wrong way of looking at it. The right way or the second way to look at this picture is to see 
or the second way is that in this triumphal procession in which Christ is the victor, the general at the center of the procession, we are the captives. We have been captured by Christ. So part of the reason or the reason that we do interpret it this way is uh, the Greek phrase lends itself to the explanation of triumphing over rather than triumphing with. All right, so rather than triumphing with Christ and being part of, um, in a sense, this victory, maybe part of his army, we are captives and have been triumphed over by Christ. You don't have to turn there, but I'll read one verse that this, uh, this phrase or this word is used. It's in Colossians 2.15, which says, He disarmed the rulers and, and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. All right, so that, that same Greek phrase is used right there, and they translate it the correct way in it triumphing over. Triumphing over the rulers and the authorities and the ones that Christ, when he died, triumphed over. So from this verse, we can see the obvious definition in which it means to triumph over, not to triumph with. And we can see that from Colossians 2.15. But to kind of explain this a little further, in your minds you might be thinking, what does it mean that we are captives of Christ, or that we have been captured by Christ? Well, I'd like you to just, you can just uh, reflect on the words as I read them, but, and you can even look at your bulletin if you'd like. Our call to worship verse, Romans 6, uh, 20 through 23, I only have the two verses on there for the call to worship, but that passage, I think, explains to us or helps us get a better grasp on this uh, kind of terminology of captives for Christ. So I'll read Romans 6, 20 through 23, and it says, For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and in its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So taking these verses from Romans, it explains what it means to be a slave for Christ. You are set free from sin in which you had previously been a slave of. So we used to be slaves of sin. And then through Christ's work, through Christ's work on the cross, and through faith in him, we now become slaves of God, or we could say captives of Christ, or captives of God. And just to kind of emphasize this point even more, if we think about Paul's writings in the New Testament, I won't have you turn to all them, and I'll just briefly overview them. We think about some of uh, the ways Paul explains himself. We think of Romans 1.1, which says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus. That word for servant can also be translated as slave or has the same uh, kind of meaning as slave. 1 Corinthians 7.22 says, For he who it was called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freedman of the Lord. So that word bondservant also comes from that word slave in the Greek. So it could be him saying, a slave of the Lord. Ephesians 6, 6 says about the same thing, but as bondservants of Christ or as slaves of Christ. Colossians 3, 24 says you are serving the Lord Christ. And this comes also from the verb, um, which means to be a slave. And then lastly, first, and this is actually Peter speaking, but First um, Peter 2, 16, he says, but living as servants of God. 
This word for servants also comes from the word to be a slave. So we see Paul often, or the apostles, um, including Peter, sometimes call themselves servants for Christ or slaves of Christ. So we don't see that this is something that's just um, original or new to this, this passage that we have in front of us today. So Paul was an enemy of God. Paul was a sinner. He was a slave to sin, living in his own selfish ways. But then Paul was captured and made a slave, no longer of sin, but of Christ. As we see in verse 14, we see that he was made a slave or made of captive in Christ by the words when it says, but thanks be to God who in Christ. It shows what his captivity was in. It wasn't um, him picturing that he was actually part of a Roman processional um, in the sense back in the day um, when the, the captives were captured by the Romans, but he was talking of it in more of a spiritual sense. In Christ was his captivity. And just a word, one more word about this, um, this phrase, captured for Christ. If we think about our picture, if we go back to that whole picture I had you picture in your head of the Roman triumphal procession, we think of the captives, and they were miserable walking uh, through the streets. I'm sure people didn't uh, look on them too highly. Uh, they were seen as reflecting and glorifying the victor, but we think of their captivity as miserable, as probably distressing, realizing they were walking to their death. But if we think about Paul's captivity, it's not the same. He doesn't think of himself in a miserable sense or a distraught sense, but it's a joyful captivity, one in which he is happy in. So now that we've kind of hopefully gotten a better picture or uh, understanding of the picture in which Paul represents in verse 14, let's see how Paul uses this picture to show how God works. And there's two ways he does this in verse 14. The first is just as the captives of the victor marching into the city brought glory to the victor, so too Paul's captivity in Christ brings glory to him. If we look back at verse 14, it says, Who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession. So we see that Paul can see his fitting place with God. God is high. He is above. He has conquered Paul through Jesus' death on the cross. Paul is, one of, Paul is one who was an enemy to God, is now conquered by him, and in Christ, Paul's life was to bring glory and honor to him. As we think about just as the captives would have brought glory and honor to this leading general by just looking on them and seeing what this leading general had led, so too our captivity for Christ is glorifying to Christ through the way that we walk, through the way that we talk, through the way that we preach the gospel. We are bringing glory on the victorious Christ and what he has done. This is at the same time a humbling thing for Paul. It's a constant attitude of humility, realizing that God conquered him. It was not by his own doing. Just as the captives of the Roman army are humbled due to their defeat, Paul should have been humbled because of God's work in his life. The second way, the second way that we see uh, Paul using this picture to show how God works is that the incense associated with the defeated captives pictures those captured by Christ spreading the fragrance of him. So not only uh, through the triumphal procession was the victor glorified through the display of those he had defeated, but as we pictured in the beginning, um, there were several smells running through the air during this victorious parade. If we think specifically of the incense that was burned, 
because of the defeat of the enemies, it could be smelled throughout the whole entire parade, as I said it. It was burned, and it went into the air so that the observers, the captives, the victor, uh, even those outside of the town, or even within the town, but not in this processional, could smell this incense. Well, Paul is saying in verse 14 when he says, and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. He is pic- using this picture of the incense to picture um, how his life being conquered by Christ is being used to spread the knowledge of Christ to all. Through Paul's words and actions, his lifestyle, his drive in life, his preaching of the gospel, this was a fragrance that spread the knowledge of God everywhere. People were able to smell Jesus on him because he was a captive for Christ. So application to this first question. First off, I would ask you, have you been captured by Christ? Has the Holy Spirit worked in your heart to bring you to a saving knowledge of him? Have you repented of your sins and placed your faith in Jesus as your Lord and Savior? If not, I would certainly uh, plead with you to think about and ponder the truths about Jesus Christ and what you truly believe. For this is the greatest thing we can do. This is the truth. This affects both your relationship with God and your eternal destiny and has eternal consequences. But if so, if you have been captured by Christ, I ask you, do you view yourself this way, as a captive of Christ? as one who is a slave for Christ, for the glory of Christ, as a captive of Christ, for the honor of Christ, and as, as one who has been conquered by Christ, to bring praise to Christ. In living for Christ, being captured by him, to submit to him, is this a joyous thing for you? So you may view yourself as a captive or as a slave for Christ, but is this a joyful thing? Is this something that brings rejoicing, brings joy to your life? Do you, do you see yourself as a fragrance for him? Through the way that you live, can people smell the name of Jesus on you? Through your words, are people overcome by the fragrance of Jesus Christ? Do you see yourself as one who needs to be spreading the truth about Christ to others? Maybe at school, at work, maybe with people that you hang out with, with those you play sports with, with those that you go out to eat with, with, the, with your friends and family. Do you see your maybe goal or your purpose to spread the fragrance of Christ to everyone. God has captured us just like he has captured Paul and is using us to bring glory to him and to spread the knowledge of him to all the people we encounter. Will you take up this way of viewing yourself and also of living? Now we look at the second question. The second question that this text answers, which is, what is the effect of God using us as the fragrance of him? So we looked at what it looks like. What does it look like for God to use us? And now we look at what is the effect? What is the result of us living our lives in this way, of God using us in this way? Well, I submit to you that there's two effects, and the first effect is that it pleases God. So if you look back with me at verse 15, this gives us the first effect. In verse 15, it says, For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. So in this triumphal procession, as I said, and as we've kind of looked at, incense was burned by the priests. 
All right, and the purpose for this incense was for it to be burned and for it to please the gods. And the Romans, uh, they, they certainly were most of them, if not all, were not burning it uh, to please our God, the God of the Bible, but they were the Roman gods, which they had many of them. And they, they saw him as the God of different things, the God of the sun, the God of uh, maybe the sky, as, di- as gods of different things, in control of different things. In the Romans, their most powerful god, usually Jupiter, was the one that this incense would be burned to during this triumphal procession. They believed this smell, this aroma, was pleasing to him. They believed that this was a delightful thing to his nose and that he would look at them in favor. So Paul explains to the Corinthians, and he uses this picture, that so too as captives of Christ, they are the aroma, they are the fragrance to God. The God of the Scriptures, the God that Paul worships. And he means this by saying that their walk in life. The thoughts, the words, the actions that they perform are to allow people to sense Jesus, to smell Jesus on them. They are to come to know Jesus through them. Doing this is a pleasing thing to God. It brings delight to him that we are being his fragrance, spreading the knowledge of him to all that we encounter. So as Paul lives his life seeking to live it in a way that he is following Christ amongst both Christians and non-Christians, this is a pleasing thing to God. So the application for us. First, may we realize that our witness for Christ is not just a task to be carried out or something that God makes us do. But this being captives for Christ and spreading his fragrance is a delightful thing to God. It's something that he looks on and is pleased about, is delighted about. This task should never be separated from God. So we certainly should not be um, trying to live our lives according to God's commandments for ourselves, for others, but solely for the purpose of glorifying God. His glory is the most important. So as we look at what the effects are of us being a fragrance, let's look at the second effect. And this uh, takes place in the first half of verse 16. If you look with me there in verse 16, it says, To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. So in saying this, um, Paul again is referencing back to this picture that we saw at the beginning, this triumphal procession. As the incense was burned, we already looked at how the effect that it had on uh, their gods, or they thought that it had on their gods. That was pleasing to them. But now we, th- we look at kind of the second half of the picture of this incense being burned and think about its effect on the people in the processional. The news was, we think about the, the news was known through the incense being burned. It kind of spread uh, the news of this victory to the people. Paul related this to his lifestyle for Christ, spreading the smell of the knowledge of God everywhere. So this fragrance in the processional went forth to all. But I would say it had different effects, or we could see that it had different effects on different people. We think about this incense being burned, the effect that it had on the crowd, the victorious general, the army. Probably brought more joy to them, just reminding what a victory they had. But then you think about the effect that it had on the captives. The effect that it had on the captives, it probably brought to them a renewed uh, thought that they were being led to their death or being led to slavery. So it certainly was not a good smell to them. And Paul uses this this picture, and he envisions this 
for the Corinthians. In verse 16, when he says, To one, a fragrance of death to death, and to the other, a fragrance from life to life. So this shows that just as the triumphal procession, the smells that were let loose due to conquering the enemies had different effects on people, so too, us being captives for Christ, us being slaves for Christ, has different effects on different people. So we'll take the first phrase, to one, a fragrance from death to death. What does this mean? It means that the lifestyle of Paul proclaiming the gospel was just speaking about a defeated dead man. So to those people that saw this fragrance of death to death, this was him, them just thinking that he was talking about a defeated dead man, speaking of Jesus. They saw this as worthless, nothing to hold on to, and they saw that it was actually the way leading to death, as we think back more so, um, or that it was very uh, maybe common back in that day in the, where the Corinthians lived and in that time period that Christians were persecuted uh, for what they believed. So these people hearing or um, receiving this fragrance would have saw, saw this message as leading to death in the sense that Christians were persecuted. This belief that they had about Jesus leads to their death because they don't believe in him. Just as the captives in the procession took the fragrance to remind them of their death, and this would lead to death, so the fragrance of God brought about by the life and witness of a captive for Christ is a stench to some. They retract from it. They retract from the smell it and reject it and hate it. If we take the next phrase in verse 16, to others a fragrance of life to life. What does this mean? It means that those who accept the message of Paul about Christ, seeing it as the way of life, seeing Christ being alive, living, not dead, they would receive life. And that life is eternal life. Just as those who smelled the incense in the procession viewed it as a life and victory for them as they would no longer be threatened by their enemies. The smell of a Christian is attractive to them. They take this as the way of life. And then in turn, since they believe in God, they will have life one day, eternal life with God. What's the application to us? I think taking this passage, we can see that there is two effects, or there is only maybe two responses that you could have to the gospel, or that someone would have to the gospel. You either reject it, or you accept it. There's no neutral position. You certainly cannot say that you're just waiting to figure it out, and you're in between. You either reject the gospel message, or you accept it. There is no neutral position. We can see that um, people will accept the gospel for what it truly is, or they will reject it. And to us who are Christians, just a word, we can certainly be reminded um, and think about that and just be reminded that when we do go out to witness, that we're not to be shocked. Uh, that when we maybe have a conversation with people about what they believe, what we believe, we're not to be shocked or surprised that they might reject the message because the, um, the Bible reminds us and tells us and warns us that this could happen that some will reject it from the onset. Some may discuss it with you and never accept it. And some may receive it with life or as life. Let's look at the third and the last question. The last question is, how can this be done? So we've looked at what does it look like for God to use us? Then we looked at what are the effects? And now lastly, let's look at how this can be done. How is this 
using of us or how God using us, how can this actually take place? How can this be done? And this comes from verses 16 through 17. And it says in those verses, or uh, the latter half of uh, verse 16, it says, Who is sufficient for these things? Verse 17, For we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God, in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. So if we reflect on the task, if, we've, if we think about what we've kind of read, what we've learned from this passage so far, we might see it as a daunting task. We might see it as a task that is, um, seems certainly hard, might even seem impossible for us to do. What a great task, and it certainly is no trivial or worthless task, for it has eternal consequences. As Paul reflected on this as well, he had the reaction maybe some of you guys have right now. He says in verse 16, who is sufficient for such things? Or who is sufficient for these things? In other words, who is competent? Who is qualified to do such a task? How are we capable to do such a thing? How can I do this? That is what Paul is saying here in verse 16. And Paul immediately gives an answer in verse 17. But when we first look at it, we might not exactly realize that verse 17 answers verse 16. So let's look at what verse 17 means. We see a contrast is going on in verse 17. We see um, that Paul is claiming not to be like those who peddle the word of God. So what does this mean to peddle or peddle the word of God? This word or this verb to peddle uh, is a verb picturing a seller in a marketplace. This merchant is seeking to sell his product. He will do this in a number of ways, if it be either deceptive practices, just trying to get someone to buy his material or buy the things that he is selling um, by tricking the buyer into thinking he's buying something when it really isn't quite that. Or uh, one who peddles uh, may use the practice of just uh, adapting and changing his product so that he has what people want. That is what Paul is picturing here in peddling God's word. Paul says he is not like those who preach the gospel in this way, adapting the message so that um, those who would usually reject the truth would accept, or by making people accept the message, the gospel message, because they thought it was something different. Paul is essentially saying here that those who peddle, those that are peddlers of God's word are seeking to accomplish this task by their own doing. They're, buying, they're trying to use their own deceptive, their own tricking practices to get the word forth for people to accept it. They're trying to do it on their own sufficiency. And then we see in verse 17 that Paul then goes to explain how he fulfills the task, showing he is not sufficient for it, nor qualified uh, for it in and of himself. Paul claims that he speaks the message and preaches the gospel in a way that is genuine. He says, but as men of sincerity, he speaks sincerely of the truth. Sincere about giving the word of God exactly for what it is, and sincere in the sense that he cares about those that would accept it, or possibly would reject it. Paul, in preaching the gospel message, realizes that he is sent by God and is preaching in God's sight. As it says in verse 17, it says, as commissioned by God, in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. And then we see in verse 17, Paul ends by saying, he speaks in Christ. His message is Christ. 
Jesus Christ, who is the Son of God, becoming man, living a sinless life, dying on the cross for man's sins and rising again to reign with his Father. This is the message, nothing added, nothing taking away, is what Paul proclaims. So Paul does answer the question, who is sufficient for these things? Who is qualified for these things? His answer is no one, in simple terms. Only through God and his working through them can one possibly carry out this task of spreading the, the knowledge of God to others. As we already saw in verse 14, it says, But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession, and through us, spreading the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. So already in verse 14, we see Paul is giving the glory, giving the work to God, showing that he is working in it. Paul is not qualified by himself. And then also, just a chapter over in 2 Corinthians 3, 4 through 6, Paul also gives the answer in verse 4, starting, he says, Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God. So he gives the praise, he gives the glory to God working through him. Paul is not sufficient in himself, but it's only through God's working in him. So application. Application to this last question. In preaching the gospel, seeking to live a life that brings forth the smell of Christ, we are to realize it is not only us who works. It is not only us who carries out this responsibility. It is not only us in the way we present the gospel that makes it effective. It is only through God's working in us that we carry out our responsibility as slaves for Christ. Without him, we are nothing. Without him, we make no progress. May we rely on him in prayer, asking him to work through us. May our trust be in him to bring the results that he sees fit. Our part is to bring forth the gospel genuinely, not twisting the message to get a response. Do not try to get people to receive it by tricking them. Preach it sincerely. Preach Christ and only Christ, and God will work how he chooses. So in closing, as we think about this passage as a whole, what do we get? We are called to realize that God works in us at all times, no matter if we feel we missed a chance to witness, no matter if we're so overwhelmed that we cannot think about anything else, no matter if we are stressed, no matter if we are busy, no matter the circumstances, God will work in us and use us in the way that he sees fit. And he will use us as his captives, as those whom Christ has cap captured. And he will use us to give off the fragrance, a smell, an odor of him, so that all those we encounter will see Christ, will be able to smell Christ on us through our words, our actions, and our proclaiming of the gospel. So may we seek to live out our captivity for Christ, which glorifies God in a way that the fragrance of him radiates off our every word, our every action in every situation so that God may work through us to spread his name to all that we encounter. Let us pray together. Lord, I just thank you for just the opportunity that we have to open up your word. We thank you for the freedom that we have to do such a thing, Lord, and we thank you for just giving our word to, uh, to uh, all of us, Lord. 
God, I just thank you for this passage, for just the truth set up her, uh, that it gives to us, Lord. I just pray that we would certainly seek to uh, let this word impact our hearts. I pray that as we think about um, our ca captivity to you, Lord, our slavery to you, Lord, that it wouldn't be something that we feel um, burdened or something that we feel um, like we really don't want, Lord, but that I just pray, Lord, that it would bring joy to us, that we would seek to view ourselves as um, those that have been conquered by you. And I just pray, Lord, that through our words, through our actions, through how we proclaim the gospel, that you would use that, that people would be able to smell you on us, that we would be a fragrance for you so that people would come to a saving knowledge of you through your work. We thank you for um, that we do not have to find our sufficiency in you, but, I mean, do not have to find our sufficiency in ourselves, but find it in you, Lord. I just thank you for that, and it truly uh, brings great uh, reliance on you and hope, Lord. God, I just thank you again for this passage. May we seek to be your captives and seek to share your name to all people that we encounter. And in your name I pray, amen.